This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of a series about telling difficult stories, and my guest is Susan Connolly. Susan is a local Portland author of the book The Foremost Good Fortune, a memoir of her two years in China. Susan, her husband, and her two young sons traveled to China, where she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Susan writes movingly about how both living with cancer and living in China were two different forms of cultural isolation, making her feel foreign and different from those around her. She also writes about what it meant to talk to her children about cancer. Earlier in her life, Susan was the co-founder and former executive director of The Telling Room, a writer's workshop and literary hub for kids in southern Maine. Welcome to Safe Space, Susan. It's a treat to be here. Early in your book, and after you were diagnosed with cancer, a friend offers you a blank notebook, and she suggests that you write your way through cancer as a way to get through it. And at first, you want nothing to do with it. I'd love to hear what changed your mind and made you decide that you did want to write about cancer. Well, I had started writing a book about motherhood and uh, raising my two young boys in Beijing. And I was very intentional about that. When we moved to China, I'd kind of cleared my slate. And I, I knew I wanted to try to capture China through that sort of precocious, um, wide-eyed lens of the boys. And I wrote about 100 pages of that book. And then I found my own cancer, as I say in the book, on a sunny Sunday morning in downtown Beijing. And I had a really hard time connecting the dots between the mother voice, that woman that was telling that kind of wry, carefree travelogue mm -hmm. story that I'd written 100 pages of, and this woman who had cancer. And so after I had been given that, that book, um, I wrestled with whether to keep any notes in it. I didn't want to be a cancer, cancer memoirist. I didn't want to tell that story at first at all. Um, I didn't think I had anything to say. Um, and in fact, my friend said, um, said a line that I quote in the book. She said, writing may help you make sense of this. So I'd love to hear more about that. And, you know, in, with the virtue of hindsight, how do you think that both writing it and then subsequently clearly telling it has helped you do that? So writing it in real time as I did was um, incredibly cathartic in ways that I, I, I didn't expect. And I think at first um, I've learned that a lot of my cancer friends, cancer survivor friends and, and um, people that I've heard from, because I've heard from all kinds of amazing women since this book came out um, who have their own cancer stories to tell and motherhood stories, um, they're, they're dealing with a lot of anger that they can't quite place, a lot of frustration, um, and it's sort of amorphous. And um, what happened for me was I actually was able to write through some of that anger, and for me it was more sadness. M my reaction to my cancer was more sort of sadness that, that I might not be there for my kids. Mm. Um, and then w what happened is I moved through that, and I didn't really use much of that material in the book. So it was sort of pre-writing or, or writing to get to the, the other stuff. Um, and that was quite a revelation to me, that all that sort of anger and, and frustration would, would go away. 
is really striking. I mean, um, you do you do write about your fear that you won't be there for your kids. And when I hear you say now that, you know, you really came through that, it, that feels incredibly hopeful. It makes me want to run out and say, okay, everybody start writing. <laughs> what a huge <laughs> gift. You, you do, you know, and speaking about the anger, there's one moment where you write about um, almost, you don't use the word punish, but it's almost like, where you realize that you no longer have fantasies of wanting to punish people who are healthy or that you're no longer carrying that same resentment. Um, and was that the same? Was it the writing that really helped you with that or were there other ingredients? Um, there was a, there was a, 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 a sort of long recipe of things. <laughs> you have gone to the sort of crux of the whole book. So I am, I'm kind of stunned by your sort of discerning ear because that line in the book was the turning point for the whole book. Mm. Um, and I, it felt in, almost inflammatory when I wrote that line because that was me being my most honest about the cancer. And in fact, that, that line comes from a breakthrough day that I had um, writing sort of the turning point for the whole book. And I, I wrote, I my husband Tony took the boys somewhere, um, somewhere else in the city, and I was alone in Beijing, and I was grappling with with the cancer and that kind of post-treatment hangover that I talk about now, where you should be doing cartwheels, you're done with treatment, but in fact you feel worse mm. um, because you've lost your support net, you've lost your sort of um, sense of being proactive about your cancer, and um, I didn't realize that there were sort of schedules and stages of, of um, getting over treatment and, and that I was in a classic one at the time, but I was feeling really flat and I was writing and writing um, and it was the day that I feel like I got really honest and put my fear on paper and put my sadness on paper and pages and pages and, and until then I really hadn't um, reckoned with the cancer on the page. I'd sort of circled it talked about my boys, talked about my husband, and I got to that line at the end of the, at the session, something, it goes something very close to, I can finally say I'm not resentful for everyone in my life who doesn't have cancer. Yes. Um, and I thought, I remember Tony came home and I said, okay, I think I can write this book. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because one of the things I think about a lot in terms of the subject of telling difficult stories is what is the relationship with the writer and the reader? And if the relationship is one where you're resenting your reader, it's tricky. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, the reader will feel that. And what I, what I felt in reading your book when I read that line was this sense of relief, like, oh, of course, how could you not feel that way? How, what a relief to let that be named and out on the table. And it wasn't like I was feeling resented until then, you know, as your reader. But it strikes me that a book can only really work if the author isn't really furious with their reader. Right. Yeah, you know, that word, that kind of cliche word, compassion, comes up a lot um, in survivorship, I think, of disease. And it comes up a lot in... um, in the work I was doing that I touch on a little in the book, but um, I started doing yoga in China 
um, a little bit before the cancer, and then it became this wonderful way to heal after the mastectomy surgery. And that word kept coming up, compassion. And, and now I'm, I'm doing other writing projects, and again that word comes up because I think it is a similar relationship, that, that listener and storyteller, the reader and the writer. If you don't feel that compassion um, coming for you as, as, a, as a reader, Mm. Um, then, yeah. It's striking, isn't it? Because, of course, we're very aware of having compassion for the author. But it really is a mutual relationship. It is. I mean, when I'm teaching, I often tell my students that your your reader needs food. They need, you know, something to drink because they'll get dehydrated along the journey. They might need some nice music, some lively conversation. You have to actually, you know, make your story a place where your reader would want to settle in. One of the things that also really struck me, and this is again about telling and telling difficult stories, is you describe the etiquette of dating new friends in China. (laughs) And the process at which, you know, a new friendship begins and, you know, you you make this step and then you make that step and then you return that phone call and so on and so forth. And one of the things that really struck me was the difficulty of having cancer and having so many feelings about it where your friendships there were still so early in the process and not wanting to burden them. And I was curious, did you end up having friends in Beijing that you felt like you could confide in, or or did your writing end up filling that place? I felt like I was able to open up to those friendships more and that it was a real a real balancing act. It wasn't, it wasn't just that, that these women were from different cultures and, and were new friends. It was, I learned it was also me, that I had to learn to open up in so many ways, inherently private, and was really uncomfortable at first talking about my illness and having to, to open up and then see if I could be met with what what I would be met with. I mean, I do have a moment in the book where there's this one woman who just doesn't get it. And she says, well, why aren't you happy with what you have? You you have these two boys. Because I'd just gotten back to Beijing after the surgeries and the radiation, and and I was feeling that that sort of lowness. And that didn't even last that long. It was so on on schedule. And I took a small risk in telling her that because I did feel like I was a little out to sea. I felt, I felt really alone. And that was an example of not being met with what you hope. Yes, and as you describe, you want to throw the table. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I noticed that. <laughs> I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that scene because, mm. you know, I, and thank, thankfully books take a while to write. You move through that. That's what's amazing about, I think, the creative process is you start, oh, I'm going to write about Gretel because she really disappointed me. And then by the end, you think, I don't need to hold on to that. That is not where I need to, to place my, my energy in this book. When you were writing, were there parts of the story that you left out because they just felt too personal, too embarrassing? I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the line as a writer, as a memoirist, between privacy, a kind of the discernment about modesty, and and shame, and how you walk that line between, I can't say this because it's just embarrassing, versus, you know, actually, it, that would be oversharing to say that. How, how did you think about that question? 
difficult and sort of delicate tightrope walk, I I would put scenes in. I mean, there's a scene in the book where um, I am just reaching for a T-shirt as my four-year-old runs into the room to ask me a question. And it actually ended up being a really important scene for me, but um, and a kind of a, a anchor for the whole book because at that point I'm I'm literally I'm disrobed and I'm just being I'm just being really honest and and my son Aiden has a really hard time with some some peeling radiation peeling skin he sees for a nanosecond and I really struggled with do I do I leave that in do I take that out you know are people going to understand that four-year-old boys burst in on their mothers mm-hmm. in their bedrooms all the time, you know, many times a day. Um, have I crossed a line here? Um, and, you know, I did take out other things. I, I took out scenes that were similar to that, um, scenes that were just, that just felt too, too personal around my kids and my body. Yes. You did choose to leave in one that felt incredibly poignant. And I, I feel I'm, I'm aware even asking this question of my kind of caution about respecting your privacy and even asking you the question. But you left in one scene where your where your child again walks in on you unexpectedly and sees that after you know after your reconstructive surgery after the mastectomy you don't yet have a nipple that's been created for you, which is the case of course for everyone in that process. And um, you talk about it with him, and I felt I sort of held my breath through that conversation because it felt so real and so honest. And I wondered about your courage in sharing it. The real that experience is as a mother, as a woman, um, and trying to put words around it for kids. And you know that that particular um, storyline has only been complicated. That just isn't easy for kids to get their heads around and. And you know what happens is, as I get more comfortable with my new, my new sort of body, and my kids get older, our conversations become a little more um, frank, a little more honest, sort of every month. Um, and that's been that's been a, a kind of amazing thing to watch. You know, another moment that really struck me as a reader and as a mother is um, your honesty about about your parenting and. Early on, you described this kind of little room in your head that you can go into um, when you just need to escape the sort of relentless demands of parenting. And at times when you can't access that little room and how awful that can feel when it feels really (laughs) overwhelming. And I just wanted to, in some ways, thank you for being willing to share, you know, less than ultimately empathic moments as a mother. I feel like it's very generous when we choose to share that. Um, as opposed to the kind of false images of loving every minute of it and being completely attuned every minute and the tyranny of that for other mothers. I can't tell you how many women, um, you know, of, of, of not the women that like the book, they mostly, they all seem to like that scene. <laughs> yes. They, really they feel like, oh, phew, I'm not a terrible mother that I do that. Yeah, and, but it amazes me. I mean, that's a tiny little moment in the book, and I think, Gosh, we could all be telling a lot more stories. Yes, about our mothering and our our struggles and our our um, you know our great great joy. We're sort of I think we get sort of trapped into these sort of cliches and these 
these assumptions, and, and all of a sudden I just I wrote about that room, and then all these women are saying, I have that room. I, I need that room. <laughs> How can I get myself a room? <laughs> That's right. I want to ask you now about something you mentioned earlier about the schedule of responding to cancer treatment. Because you mentioned the idea of a schedule briefly in the book where you talk about the sadness that you felt later. And you said, I, I didn't realize, in fact, that I was right on schedule. But I'd love to hear more about what you mentioned about the sort of post-treatment hangover and then the kind of sadness. Are, are there other things about that schedule that would be helpful to name? Yeah, it was a revelation to me that you didn't walk away from your last oncology visit and you have gotten your sort of cancer-free sticker, and then you go home and you feel horrible. That was that was probably the most surprising thing after getting the diagnosis. Uh, and thankfully, I'm, I was able to meet all these survivors um, through various wonderful ways out there in the cancer universe. And many of us, have had that experience and some of us didn't feel really low for maybe two years after treatment was over and then only recently really struggled because I think that that sort of reckoning with the disease for many of us happens after and then there's who knows exactly when but there was this amazing woman down in Boston at the Massachusetts General again and she she runs this center for parents um, with cancer, mm. and so the center is not for the children, actually, it's for the parents, and she said something that I, I do mention in the book, which is that um, many of her patients don't really come to terms with their diagnosis for about five years, and that really startled me at first, and I'm now three years out, and um, I feel like I'm still grappling with it, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much... Um, in a place where it's not taking me low every day, certainly. Mm. Um, but I, I really understood what that doctor meant um, because I think the um, this sort of busyness of treatment is comforting in a way that you don't realize until after it's over. And I, I think I say in the book that I, I will admit right now I like having radiation because it's something tangible that I was doing. It felt... Like, I must be getting better because there are machines going off and mm. nurses bustling around, and then all of a sudden there's nothing. And and then I just basically got on a jumbo jet and flew back to China, and then I felt like, wait a minute, where where are the nurses? How, yes. how am I getting better now? Right. Um, and that's kind of a free fall that it, it seems many people go through at one stage or another. Um, mm. You meant or they don't, and then they're surprised. Something, something will crack it open a little bit later, and it'll be quite stunning to them. Um, and that that story has been told to me several times. In fact, I'm on my book journey um, at readings that, and and sometimes women write me emails, um, and they'll say that they didn't have words for what they had gone through. And then they read the book, and that articulated things for them that they hadn't really thought about. And it was scary for them, but it was good for them, they said. Mm, to have it be named. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned there's this one really powerful scene in the book where you're trapped in an elevator. 
and it's the anniversary of your mastectomy, the one-year anniversary, and you're on the phone with your husband yelling at him. (laughs) And part of what comes out is that you're furious with him because he hasn't told you that he knows it's the anniversary and that you need him. You need to know. You need him to tell you that he's thinking about your cancer. And I would love to hear you say more about that wish for people around you to tell you that they remember and that they're thinking about it. Yeah, that was, a, and still is a constant sort of back and forth. It's, everyone deals with cancer in different ways, and I've realized that some people just, they're not, they're not going to um, be able to articulate what they're thinking, but they're worriers, and they're holding on to it, and they're actually, you know, losing sleep over, over my cancer. And then there are people that are really able to just walk into a room, say, how are you feeling? you know, what's going on with your cancer, and I'll say, everything's great, and then we'll move on, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think my my dear husband, um, <laughs> because he is he is a really um, honest, straight talker and a great father and a great husband, he thought, I think, holding it and not talking was better at times. He thought that was only going to take me to, to darker places. So that elevator scene was was really important for just airing our marriage. I mean, there we were, and I just I decided, okay, I'm just going to be very honest again, and I'm going to show myself swearing at my husband <laughs> <laughs> for for no good reason. And also, I felt like that was me at my pettiest. That was me. I mean, I was really blaming him for moving us to China then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, all from the confines of the locked elevator while he's in a really important business (laughs) meeting. (laughs) It was a beautiful scene. Yes. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Susan Connolly, author of the book, The Foremost Good Fortune about her years in China and with living with cancer. I want to ask you now about the telling room, an organization here in Portland that you founded before you went to China that helps children write their stories. And I'd love to hear about how you decided to start the telling room. What's the story of what inspired you to do that? We've always believed that if a child can tell their story, they will be heard, and then all kinds of wonderful things will happen after that. I mean, things that we're now able to sort of show data around, which is a kind of cognitive literacy and, and better, you know, writing and, and all kinds of tools around writing, but also equally important, I think, is an emotional literacy. And um, for some of these kids, the first time that they really are heard and that their story is valued, um, and that, that has all kinds of amazing ripples. Tell me more about those ripples. What does it mean to be heard and to have your story be valued? So, um, you know, one of our first projects that was sort of citywide and, and um, had, this, had a, a sort of grand finale um, at Space Gallery in Portland was called the Coming to America Project. And we um, had writing mentors from all over southern Maine that were kind enough to volunteer their time to go into the schools once a week and work one-on-one with students. Most of those students were um, kids from Africa and from um, the Middle East 
that had come here in really stressful circumstances. We're talking about the last train out of Sudan or, you know, hopping on a plane in the middle of the night with no warning um, out of Somalia. And their stories were, were riveting, and they had never told them. Um, so they were, you know, not, not only were they finding out that this story was inside them, but they had never heard their own voices. You know, we were tape recording them, and for some of them that was just revelatory to even hear their voices. And then there were all kinds of cultural barriers around telling these stories, particularly for the girls. Um, but what happened was just an incredible amount of trust and um, these beautiful, vivid rich stories came out. Um, so we made a book of them, and that was the beginning of the Telling Room doing an anthology every year that, you know, often is the best-selling book at Longfellow Books. I understand that after a child has been helped to write a story, that they're always invited to read it aloud to the group that yeah. they're part of. Yeah, exa- exactly. So we have this sort of celebration at the end um, of the year, and during the end of each mini workshop, whatever that workshop is, there's always a, a, um, a telling day, a, a, a story day. You mentioned there's a small movie made about the telling room, and in it you say that you feel like uh, the chance to write a story and be heard also affects the child's sense of identity. And I wondered if you could say more what you meant by that. I've been teaching writing now for 20 years, and I think I've seen that happen on a daily basis, that when the child, the student, reads something that they've written in that first person, that powerful first person voice, even if it's just for that moment, they, they sit up a little straighter. They, they, they emanate a kind of pride, um, and they surprise themselves. And then it's kind of, it's this wonderful thing where they want more of it. And you can see the light going on because um, maybe they've been silenced until then. And, and wow, I, I have a story to tell. And I mean, here's the big piece of the telling room is I have a teacher. I have someone who cares, who's looking me in the eye, who's listening to me, who's saying that my story matters. So for, for the telling room is so much about, about the teacher, too, um, and the empathy and the nurturing that needs to go on in the classroom. So it's, it's more than just, you know, showing up. It's, it's a very particular kind of teaching that we do that's really open-ended. And when you were writing your own story about your cancer, did you have someone like that who was nurturing you along to find your, own, your voice? You know, when I started this book tour, I wrote a little essay about teachers because it's funny, that, it's funny that you say this. I just felt so indebted to all the teachers in my life um, because I think everybody deserves at least one, mm. one magical teacher. One, or, and it doesn't have to be someone in the classroom. I mean, it could be someone in your greater family life. It could be someone out there in, in the universe that, that um, shows you a different way. And um, I had a few of those. I did. I, I had one as early as sixth grade. Sometimes it's just someone who gives you permission to, to, to mess up. And, and um, for me, it was always writing teachers, though. 
have to say. So we're going to have to stop in a minute, Susan, but I want to ask you, having now told your own, you know, your own journey story, um, and then traveling with it and publishing it, do you come back to these kids and teach them and support them as they tell their stories in a different way? Is there something new that you're bringing to that? I think that cancer is a great humbler. So if anything, I hope that I can relate just a little bit more to the struggles that that the kids at the telling room have faced. And also, living in China was one of the greatest life adventures that we could have ever imagined. And I'm so grateful for getting to live in China. And, and that's a great sort of equalizer, too. So um, I hope that um, I have just a little more understanding, you know, that my, my frame is a little wider um, when our kids start writing their stories. I hope I'm a better listener. I think, I think that's another thing about the great road trips around the world, that you, you have to be a listener. You have to listen. Susan Connolly, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much. It's been a great treat to be here. So Susan Connolly's book is The Foremost Good Fortune, which can be found on any local bookstore. If you want to learn more about The Telling Room, you can visit the website, thetellingroom.com, and you can also go to Susan's website, susanconley.com. This is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space Radio. I've been talking to Susan Connolly about her memoir about living in China and dealing with cancer as a mother. Coming up next is Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.